really excited to preach today. I have been working on this sermon since last year. Thank you for the, uh, the laughter. New year, we have to, you know, we're closing the books on last year and we're starting new things. And so part of that has to do with boxing up all of our Christmas decorations. You know, you can come tomorrow and help us uh, undeck the halls, but you're probably doing that at home if you haven't already done so. And every year that, every year that you do that, you get your boxes down, you figure out where you're going to put everything, and you look at your closet and you're like, how in the world did this get in here last year? So maybe if I put it in this way and then, you know, bring your kid in who loves Legos and they'll figure it out, no problem. And but every time that we tear down our tree, you know, we take the lights off, take the garland off, the ribbon or whatever you put on your tree, your star, your angel, you, you box away your ornaments. And it's really fun when you look at all of the ornaments that you've collected over the years. And really, a Christmas tree, not only do we use it to celebrate Christmas, but it almost is like our communal family memory tree. You know, my, my, my mom and dad got me an ornament every year. So on the bottom it has the date, uh, the year date. And so it's kind of just looking back through time of here's this. And, and so you always have those ornaments that, you know, your kids or your grandkids or that you made when you were younger. And all the memories just come back. And craft time with kids is a very interesting experience. And normally what happens is you, you know, you have your, the kids there and you give them the supplies of for the craft, and your prayer is that more of, the, more of the ingredients, more of the supplies are on the actual craft than on the child. That's how you, that's how you judge on whether or not it's a successful crap, or craft. <laughs> or that too. But anyway, um, successful craft. Wow. <laughs> well, it's been real. See ya. Okay. Um, <laughs> For, for me, when I was little growing up, like doing Sunday school, VBS, different things like that, or at school, uh, craft time was always really hard for me. I was the kid who always had more of it on them uh, than the person, and my worst enemy was glitter. Whoever invented glitter should be thrown in prison, because glitter is the gift that just keeps on giving and giving and giving. I was talking to somebody after first service who said, I think that is a scientific fact that glitter, when left alone, multiplies. It just explodes everywhere. And so, you know, when you leave kids alone with uh, their crafting time, you come back and you're expecting that Tasmanian devil came right through. And it's just a mess. It's just a mess. And some of you, some of you, when I said glitter, you like freaked out and got hives. Like, somebody's got to clean that up. (laughs) The the mess bothers us. It's like, somebody's got to fix it. For me, it's my, uh, the desktop on my computer. Uh, I like things being in, fo- in uh, folders, and so, like, you know, I like three icons on my, at least, like, that's it. The most I can have is three icons on my desktop. Otherwise, it's just, like, too much clutter for me. Right now, I have four, so I'm, like, trying to, I'm, like, getting hives right now. Like, just the mess, just, is, it's just too much. It's just too much. We're starting today on a journey, on a walk through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is this letter written 2,000 years ago to real people in a real place. 
And so we're, gonna, we're just going to start on this journey today. And so if you have your Bibles, your phone, tablet, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 here. And uh, we're just going to kind of walk through and see where it takes us. And so 1 Corinthians 1, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, sweet name, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I have to stop there and we got to figure out who's who. So we have some different names. We have Paul, we have Sosthenes, and we have the church of God in Corinth. Now, Sosthenes, just brief mention there, uh, he at one time, this probably is the same guy who was in charge of the Jewish synagogue, the place of worship in Corinth. Um, And so he either is added on the intro to this letter uh, as maybe the scribe who wrote this down for Paul or with Paul, or maybe his name's on it just to say, I agree with what Paul is saying here. Okay? Then we have Paul, and then we have Corinth. Now, When we first meet Paul, we meet him in Acts, in the book of Acts. And his name is not Paul, it's Saul. Which is going to be confusing because two names, same person. But when we first meet Saul, he is a very great Jewish man. Very great Jewish man. When, When he talks about himself in the book of Philippians, he uses some really interesting phrases and and, uh, words to describe himself. And so in Philippians 3, he calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he's meaning in this section is like, he grew up the way a traditional Jewish boy is supposed to grow up. He was born on the eighth day, he was circumcised. He grew up learning the law, learning the traditions. I mean, he he grew up this right way. So Paul is a Jewish boy, but he's also a Roman citizen. And this matters later in his life, big time. It's a huge deal that he's a Roman citizen which he probably got from his his dad. So he's a Roman citizen, and he's Jewish. And he calls himself in the book of Philippians, he says that he was zealous for the law. I love that word, zealous. We don't use that enough in today's world. And he's zealous for the law, and he's a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, we learn about them uh, in the life of Jesus, but Pharisee really is, it's it's a, a... kind of like a, a group of interpretation and how they follow God in, in the Jewish, uh, Jewish faith back 2,000 years ago. And what it was, was it was this strict interpretation of the law and oral, oral traditions. And it also was, if you were a Pharisee, a good Pharisee, it meant that you, you committed yourself, you took a voluntary oath to follow, strictly follow all of the Old Testament law and all of the oral traditions. I mean, th- this mindset, this school of thought is not just like, oh yeah, I want to be a Pharisee. It's like, I'm a Pharisee. I'm follow- I am in this. I'm zealously going to live out this interpretation. I'm zealously going to do this. And, and, and so we see, we see Saul at the beginning. I mean, even his name, even his name, Saul, is a very Jewish name. Saul's a Benjaminite, so he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And their famous, the most famous Benjaminite that we would talk about the most, at least in their circles, would be King Saul. I mean, he's probably named after him. I mean, he is, he is 
out of anybody else in that context, like he's the guy who's got it all figured out, all put together. Like he is awesome. And so the way that he zealously follows God, we see at the end of Acts 7, is that he is a part of the stoning to death of Stephen, the first martyr for Christ. And in Acts 8, right at the beginning, Acts 8, 1 through 3, we see that Saul, he, he, he approves of this stoning. Because Stephen, by following Jesus and saying Jesus is God, he's going against this strict interpretation of the law. He's going against the Pharisees. You can't say that. You're, that's blasphemy. And Paul, zealously, he's trying to do the right thing. He's like, this guy's got to die. And then from there, he gets sent out to begin this persecution of Christians. He gets sent out to go around and to persecute different people. And on one of these trips, he goes to Damascus, where he's going to see if there's anybody that's following Jesus, and he's going to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem, and then they're going to deal with them there. And while he's on the road, while he's on the road, God appears to him in a bright light and blinds him for three days. And he looks at him and he says, and God looks at Paul or Saul at this time and says, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And I think at that moment, Saul just was like, are you kidding me? Me persecute you? No, God, 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 God. No, no, no. I've been following you zealously. Like, I mean, I follow you to the nth degree. I do the right thing. And so as... Saul goes to Damascus and he meets a man named Ananias who God uses to help him understand Jesus and to heal him so he can see again. Uh, Jesus tells Ananias on the way that he's to help Saul, he says, you have to help this guy because this, this man, Saul, is going to be, he's my chosen instrument that's going to bring me to all the Gentiles, to all the non-Jews. So you go from this guy who's like, he's, he's, he's got it figured out. He's doing the right thing. He's got great intentions. He is rocking it for God. And in that moment in Damascus, he realizes that he's one of the messiest people ever. He's messy. Saul, this committed follower of God, is messy. One of my professors at Lincoln Christian University uh, he was teaching us in our uh, a class on Paul, and he always talked about how we have to be careful when we view the transition from Saul to Paul. As we view that and his transformation, um, we shouldn't view it as a 180-degree turn. It's more of a, a redirect, more of like a new aligning, because Paul, is, Paul goes from committedly, zealously following God to zealously committed to following God. It's not like he has this giant 180 degree turn, but God, the grace of Jesus transforms him and then he believes in Christ and then from that, God uses him to change the world. This redirect. He was messy and didn't know it and God's grace covered him. And then we, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1 a little bit farther down, we have the church of God in Corinth. Now Corinth is a very interesting place. And to help us understand Corinth, uh, they entrusted me with a laser pointer, which is awesome. So I have a couple, couple pictures here, a couple maps just to help us understand. So I'm going to have to do it on both. I'll do my best. So uh, this is a map, obviously. This is a map. Uh, where did my laser go? No, somebody turned it off. Can't really see it. Okay. So this is, this is Mediterranean Sea. So Greece, 
Greece is like right over here. It's like the teal area. And you have mainland Greece, which is up here, and then this little, little bitty peninsula, which is the Peloponnese. So like Sparta is there, uh, like the first civilization in Greece is there, Mycenae. I mean, this is like a big deal in ancient history, the Peloponnese. And notice at the bottom of Greece, notice at the bottom of Greece, uh, there are little like jagged areas and there's tons of islands over there. And so what you would do if you owned a ship and you were doing transport and stuff like that, you wouldn't want to go around the south of Greece because that's really dangerous. You know, they didn't have GPS, they didn't have radar. It's dark, it's dark. I mean, you know, you don't have giant lights. I mean, it's, you, you want to go th- during the day, but it's just, it's treacherous. And so what they would do is they would go to Corinth and do a really creative thing on how to get to the other side. So go ahead and show the next map. This is from NASA. And so this is modern day kind of thing. So the stars where um, ancient Corinth is, and then the big city center north of that would be where um, uh, like modern day kind of Corinth is in that whole area. And so this little area is a land bridge in Isthmus. And so Isthmus connects two bodies of land, like a little bitty land bridge, and then you have water on either side. And there's five miles between both of the seas right here. And so what you would do, instead of going around the south of Greece, which is really treacherous, you would go to the one port of Corinth, because it had two, one on either side of this isthmus. And on the, one, uh, on the one port, if you were a really, really large ship, you would unload all of your cargo, give it to people who would walk it across the five miles to the other side, put it on another ship, and then continue on the journey. It was just way easier. And what I think is really funny is that if you were a small enough ship, they built this contraption where they just pick you up out of the water, put you on the land, and just roll you across to the other side, put you back in. Super cool. Now, now there's a little line. You can kind of see a little break. There's a canal there. But that canal was not put there until the late 1800s. And so this was just, this was a huge trade city. Huge trade city. And if you, ha- if you have a lot of trade, that means there's a lot of different people that are coming in and out of this town all the time. It's a Greek city and a Roman city. So you have two different cultures that are living in this town. And then you have every merchant that's coming in here bringing their own philosophies and religions. So it's very, very diverse. Very diverse. I actually got to go to Corinth with uh, Dr. Mesner uh, through a trip through Lincoln Christian University. And... Uh, it was, just, it was such a cool experience. I kept the ticket uh, for when we got to go in. I keep it in my Bible. And the reason is because I always want to remember every time I teach and every time I read the Bible that the people that God is speaking to through these people, Paul, uh, James, John, he, he's talking to real-life individuals who lived 2,000 years ago. And their stories and their histories matter. And it helps us understand What is being said in the Bible? We have to understand their lens. And so I have this just so I can remember that. And and so when I was there, I got to take this picture. Go ahead and go to that. I got to take this picture. This is the Temple of Apollo. So uh, still standing. uh, Well, seven columns are. But still standing. And this is just one of the many temples in Corinth. There's a lot of different diversity, a lot of different religions. And so this place had, I mean... It had everything. And with a bunch of different diversity, there was some interesting religions that kind of came about. 
And this next picture, this is, this is like the main drag coming into Corinth, okay? So if you were there, if you were there in the ancient world, you would walk in on this road most likely. And you'd have different buildings on either side. And that mountain straight back is the Acro-Corinth. And on top of that mountain was the temple of Aphrodite, which had a thousand female prostitutes there to help you worship the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and beauty. And the way that you worship her is through sex. Just hovering over this city is this temple that at its core is total sexual morality, promiscuity, just on huge display. And this temple helped Corinth develop this reputation as being one of the most vile, immoral, evil places in the ancient world. Just talk about messy people. Messy people. It's so bad, like just even in their culture, the playwright Aristophanes, he coined this term, this word, to describe immoral life. And he called, and his word was Corinthianize, which means practice immorality. I mean, from the cult, just from the town and the culture, its reputation, a word developed from it. And if you said it, you're like, oh yeah, immor- immor- immorality. Oh my goodness. I mean, this place is messy. And its history is messy. In, in Greek society, anyway, male uh, promiscuity was celebrated. Sexual immorality was not even a thing. You just, it just was part of their culture. And in, in Roman culture, when they became in control of Corinth, it just continued. And so as Paul is going to the city, as anybody else is at the city, when you're there, you can see this mountain. And from the port, you can see the mountain, and you would have been able to see this temple. Just hovering, hovering over this town. Now, with all that being said, who in their right mind, what Christian especially, would ever want to go to a place like Corinth? I mean, Corinth would have been worse than our culture here in America. Who in their right mind would want to go there? Paul does. And what's fascinating about Paul and his relationship with Corinth is that he goes and he meets two of his dearest friends there, Aquila and Priscilla, who are talked about a lot in Acts. They're talked about a lot in some of Paul's other letters to real people. And you can see this whole story take place in Acts 18. I encourage you to go home today and read Acts 18. It's just fascinating. But... Part of, what happens with, part of what happens here with Paul's relationship there is that Paul goes to Corinth during a really hard time in ministry. He had just gotten back from Athens where he preached. He, didn't really, he wasn't persecuted there, but nobody wanted, to, nobody wanted to listen to him. He had very little success there. And the towns before that, he was thrown in prison. He was beat up. He was kicked out of towns. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on before he got to Corinth. But then when he gets to Corinth, probably one of the most messiest places in the ancient world, he stays there for 18 months. Some of these other places, nicer, safer places, he was there for very little. You go, what in the world are you doing, Paul? Why would you do that? There's there's many reasons probably, but when I was doing some research about this, I found two that I think were really fascinating. The obvious one is, 
this place needed Jesus. And the second is Corinth's support city. Full of influence. Everything goes through Corinth. And imagine what kingdom impact could, could happen. What could happen? What could happen for the kingdom if Jesus was being preached there at this hub? What would happen when people in Corinth became Christians from just a strategy of, of kingdom impact? I mean, this is, a, this is the place you got to be. And Paul in Acts 18, we see Paul has some of the best success in this messy, messy place. It's really crazy when you read through the book of 1 Corinthians. There's more, there's more Gentile names than Jewish names. Which means this church is really, there's a, really built around a bunch of Corinthians. A bunch of people who did not grow up knowing God. It wasn't like this, hey, there's God and we've been following him and oh, he has a son and he's the Messiah and following him that way. These are people who do not know God. This is just amazing. He has so much of this great success. And what's nuts about this is that Jesus takes messy Paul to help a messy church and it's all through his grace. What we learn from Paul in Corinth is that everyone is messy and needs the grace of Jesus every day. Every day. All of us struggle. I have struggles. You have struggles. We, we constantly fight sin. Some days we do great. Other days are just horrible days that we wish we could just forget. And all of us are messy. We're messy because of our own decisions. We're messy because of other people's decisions and their impact on us. We're all messy and need the grace of Jesus every day. And, and it's really easy for us to kid ourselves, too. We kind of get into this cycle of like, well, <laughs> I ain't as messy as that guy. We, we all do that at times. And it's crazy. We play the comparison game. We as humans play the comparison game in two ways. We play it on a who's better and who's worse level. So you kind of look at it like, hey, I'm, uh, you know, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, like I'm totally better than him because of something else. And then also we do it on like this lower end of, I mean, that person's messed up. And we as Christians have a little polite little term that we use when we talk about other people being messed up. We say bless their heart and then it like covers over a multitude of sins. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes, so oops. <laughs> I said, yeah. But we, we're so messy and we, we play this comparison game. But all of us sin. Paul, when he talks to a group of people in, in Rome, he says, everybody sin and falling short of the glory of God. We all struggle with this. We all struggle with this. And sometimes our messes are like Paul. Sometimes we're messy like Paul where we have great intentions. We think we're doing the right thing. We're zealous for God. We're, we're in the right, but we are totally wrong. That's why we have to be humble. I get myself in so much trouble because I'm in a bad way, zealous like Paul, and then my brain catches up to the passion, and I go, oh yeah, that was, that was not good. Hopefully I grow out of that. When we're messy like Paul, we have these great intentions, and we sit there and say, yeah, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm doing the right thing, but yet we're off base. Oh, and then sometimes we're messy like Corinth, where without regard for God, we do what we want, 
we live however we want to live. We follow whatever we want to follow. And as Ron said in this last, or just in December, we put ourselves on the throne and we're king. And we struggle, we struggle with that. But everybody is on this. Sometimes we're both. We're just messy. And part of what happens when we do the comparison game and we, um, and we, we try to kill ourselves that we're, oh, we're not really that bad, it all kind of comes, I think, from this, this mindset of arrival, that there's this moment in our Christian walk where we just, like, arrive and everything's great. Like, I said the, I said the prayer, I confessed my sins, I was baptized in a new life, God has forgiven me, I am saved, and so it's good. I'm good with my growth, I'm good where I'm at, I'm going to heaven, the rest of it doesn't matter. And we don't think it all the time, consciously, but I mean, I fight that sometimes, like, I'm good. I don't really need to read the Bible. I don't, I don't really need to let God control, like, all of my heart. Like, I, I can keep this part for myself. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't need that. And so we, we, our mindset of arrival kind of gives us this kind of an excuse to be like, I'm good. So... I don't need to keep growing. I don't need to keep learning. God's not really speaking to me. And we stop listening to God's spirit who every day is constantly transforming us and molding us to become more and more like his son. And we kind of shut it off. I'm guilty of it. Or sometimes that culture or that mindset of arrival is a disservice to non-Christians in our, in our town, in our state, in our world, our country, our world. Because from the outside, it looks like, oh, well, you got to meet this to be able to even be like a part of this community. And it almost becomes a stumbling block like, I ain't, I'm, nah, I'm not going to get up there. And part of that all comes from just seeing our faith in Christ as something that I don't think Christ wanted us to have. I think that Christ desires for us to have a journey of grace relationship with him where every day we're walking with him. Every day we're becoming more and more like him. Every day we're allowing God's spirit to totally own and transform our hearts that there would be no no difference from God's heart to our heart. Is that hard? Yes. But I'm on that journey and some days I take two steps forward and it's awesome and other days I fall flat on my face and slide all the way back. And we're all human. We do that all the time. We're all on this journey and we're trying to make sense of stuff and we, we make mistakes. But we are messy people who need the grace of Jesus every day to choose to say, I need your grace, Jesus. Help me become more like you. Help me become more like you. We fight this spiritual entropy. I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to do the best I can to explain entropy. Uh, entropy is, you know, thermodynamics. It's in, like, uh, communications. Um, it's also used just in, like, uh, sociological terms. This is idea of, um, of energy dispensement. Of, it's, a, it's a measurement of, um, of loss. And, and we, all kind of, we all kind of, like, start really good. We have these great moments. And then if we're not, if we don't, if we don't work at something, if we're not intentional with our faith, we're not intentional with our growth, we slowly start to entropy. We slowly start to get disorderly. I, I wish that I could say that Paul and Corinth, they were there 
18, Paul was there for 18 months, the relationship was great, and everything was awesome. But we know that's not true, because we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They fell, they fell away, some of them did. I mean, the cultural diversity just in the town affected the church. There were people who said, hey, you know, Temple of Aphrodite is up there, so like, sexual morality really is kind of like this, not really like that. And then you had other people like, no, that's really bad. And so you had, started having division. You had people suing each other like crazy. You had a, a class warfare of like, I'm, I'm better than you because I have more money. And you had all of these different dynamics. And Corinth was not only a mess just as a town, but the church became so messy because there was so much division. Because they had spiritual entropy. They weren't living life with Christ, allowing him to transform him every day. And don't get me wrong, even when we do that, we still fall, we still fall, we still sin, but God's grace covers over it. My favorite writer, his name's Dallas Willard, he just recently passed away, but he spent most of his life talking about spiritual formation. How do we become more like Christ? And he spent a lot of his time talking about this idea of apprentice, being an apprentice of Jesus. One of my buddies, his name's Danny. He lives in Virginia now. He used to work here and was in charge of our quest program. And Danny is a plumber. And it's funny, when he, when he first made that uh, change, he decided, I'm going to do this. I went up to him that, I went up to him when he told me, I was like, that's awesome. So does that mean, like, now that you're a plumber, like, you, you, like your boss just sends you into a house and is like, go fix this and just figure it out? And he's like, uh, no, because that would be a disaster. I was like, oh, well, where's the fun in that? He's like, no, 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 here's the point, Zach. I have to learn from the master plumber. I have to learn how to make sure that the flow's right with the water. I have to make sure that I know what I'm doing before I'm sent out by myself. I'm an apprentice of the master plumber. And that's us. We are apprentices of Jesus each and every day, where each and every day we learn to be more and more like him, that we take on his way of living life as our own how he would interact in all these different situations, we learn from him on how we are to live. The beauty, of, the beauty of our Christian faith is that it's this weird relationship between grace, with weird relationship between grace and, and our lives and how we live them. And Dallas Willard said this, that we, when he's talking about being an apprentice, in a conversation with John Orberg, he says this, in churches, we sometimes do ourselves a major disservice when we come in and say, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And we put on this mask and we say, you know, Jesus saved me, so I'm good. Instead, he says, we should learn from AA meetings where we come in and we say, he, and, and in his words, he said, I'm Dallas and I'm a recovering sinner. I'm on this journey to becoming more and more like Jesus. The beauty of AA is not only just being able to say that in a safe community, saying that um, I'm an alcoholic. It's not just that. It's the relationship that is formed when everybody in that circle can say the two most powerful world, words in our world, which is me too. I get it. Me too. I'm a recovering center too. And just like Paul and just like Corinth, I need grace every day. 
And what's beautiful about AA is that it's the relationships that are formed that help people say no to the addiction and actually have recovery. Do you think of yourself like that? As a recovering sinner? Somebody on this journey trying to live more and more like Jesus? Sometimes fall away, have bad days, other, time, other days it's a great day, but you're still in recovery. Paul, when he wrote to a young leader by the name of Titus, he, he's talking to Titus about how he's supposed to teach at his church. And he says this. One of the things he says that you have to teach is this. This is in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. For it, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us, to remake us, to make us new from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. For it is the grace of God that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Everyone is, a me- everyone is messy and needs the grace of Jesus every day. Hi, I'm Zach, and I'm a recovering sinner. <laughs>